Author's Prologue of the Life Everlasting, A Reality of Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Statler. The Life Everlasting, A Reality of Romance by Marie Corelli. In the Gospels of the only divine friend this world has ever had, or ever will have, we read of a voice, a voice in the wilderness. There have been thousands of such voices, most of them ineffectual. All through the world's history their echoes form a part of the universal record, and from the very beginning of time they have sounded forth their warnings or entreaties in vain. The wilderness has never cared to hear them. The wilderness does not care to hear them now. Why, then, do I add an undesired note to the chorus of rejected appeal? How dare I lift up my voice in the wilderness, when other voices, far stronger and sweeter, are drowned in the laughter of fools and the mockery of the profane? Truly, I do not know. But I am sure that I am not moved by egotism or arrogance. It is simply out of love and pity for suffering humankind that I venture to become another voice discarded, a voice which, if heard at all, may only serve to awaken the cheap scorn and derision of the clowns of the peace. Yet, should this be so, I would not have it otherwise. I have never, at any time, striven to be one with the world, or to suit my speech pliantly to the conventional humor of the moment. I am often attacked, yet am not hurt. I am equally often praised, and am not elated. I have no time to attend to the expression of opinions, which, whether good or bad, are to me indifferent. And whatever pain I have felt or feel in experiencing human malice has been, and is, in the fact that human malice should exist at all, not for its attempted wrong towards myself, for I, personally speaking, have not a moment to waste among the mere shadows of life which are not life itself. I follow the glory, not the gloom. So whether you, who wander in darkness of your own making, care to come towards the little light which leads me onward, or whether you prefer to turn away from me altogether into your self-created darker depths, is not my concern. I cannot force you to bear me company. God himself cannot do that, for it is his will and law that each human soul shall shape its own eternal future. No one mortal can make the happiness or salvation of another. I, like yourselves, am in the wilderness, but I know that there are ways of making it blossom like the rose. Yet, were all my heart and all my love outpoured upon you, I could not teach you the divine transfiguring charm, unless you, equally with all your hearts and all your love, resolutely and irrevocably willed to learn. Nevertheless, despite your possible indifference, your often sheer inertia, I cannot pass you by, having peace and comfort for myself, without at least offering to share that peace and comfort with you. Many of you are very sad, and I would rather you were happy. Your ways of living are trivial and unsatisfactory. 
your so-called pleasant vices lead you into unforeseen painful perplexities your ideals of what may be best for your own enjoyment and advancement fall far short of your dreams your amusements pall on your over-wearied senses your youth hurries away like a puff of thistledown on the wind and you spend all your time feverishly in trying to live without understanding life life the first of all things the essence of all things life which is yours to hold and to keep and to recreate over and over again in your own persons this precious jewel you throw away and when it falls out of your possession by your own act you think such an end was necessary and inevitable poor unhappy mortals so self-sufficient so proud so ignorant like some foolish rustic who finding a diamond sees no difference between it and a bit of glass you with the whole universe sweeping around you in mighty beneficent circles of defensive protective and ever recreative power power which is yours to use and to control imagine that the entire cosmos is the design of mere blind unintelligent chance and that the divine life which thrills within you serves no purpose save to lead you to death most wonderful and most pitiful it is that such folly such blasphemy should still prevail and that humanity should still ascribe to the almighty creator less wisdom and less love than that with which he has endowed his creatures for the very first lesson in the beginning of knowledge is that life is the essential being of god and that each individual intelligent outcome of life is deathless as god himself the wilderness is wide and within it we all find ourselves some wandering far astray some crouching listlessly among shadows too weary to move at all others sauntering along in idle indifference now and then vaguely questioning how soon and where the journey will end and few ever discovering that it is not a wilderness at all but a garden of sweet sights and sounds where every day should be a glory and every night a benediction for when the veil of mere appearances has been lifted we are no longer deceived into accepting what seems for what is the reality of life is happiness the delusion of life which we ourselves create by improper balance and imperfect comprehension of our own powers must needs cause sorrow because in such self-deception we only dimly see the truth just as a person born blind may vaguely guess at the beauty of bright day but for the soul that has found itself there are no more misleading lights or shadows between its own everlastingness and the everlastingness of god all the world over there are religions of various kinds more or less suited to the various types and races of humanity most of these forms of faith have been evolved from the brooding brain of man himself and have nothing divine in them in the very early ages nearly all the religious creeds were mere methods for terrorizing the ignorant and the weak and some of them were so revolting so bloodthirsty and brutal that one cannot now read of them without a shudder of repulsion nevertheless from the very first dawn of his intelligence 
man appears always to have felt the necessity of believing in something stronger and more lasting than himself and his first gropings for truth led him to evolve desperate notions of something more cruel more relentless and more wicked than himself rather than ideals of something more beautiful more just more faithful and more loving than he could be the dawn of christianity brought the first glimmering suggestion that a gospel of love and pity might be more serviceable in the end to the needs of the world than a ruthless code of slaughter and vengeance though history shows us that the annals of christianity itself are stained with crime and shamed by the shedding of innocent blood only in these latter days has the world become faintly conscious of the real force working behind and through all things the soul of the divine or the psychic element animating and inspiring all visible and invisible nature this soul of the divine this psychic element however is almost entirely absent from the teaching of the christian creed today, with the result that the creed itself is losing its power i venture to say that a very small majority of the millions of persons worshipping in the various forms of the christian church really and truly believe what they publicly profess clergy and laity alike are tainted with this worst of all hypocrisies that of calling god to witness their faith when they know they are faithless it may be asked how i dare to make such an assertion i dare because i know it would be impossible to the people of this or any other country to honestly believe the christian creed and yet continue to live as they do their lives give the lie to their avowed religion and it is this daily spectacle of the daily life of governments trades professions and society which causes me to feel that the general aspect of christendom at the present day with all its churches and solemn observances is one of the most painful and profound hypocrisy you who read this page possibly with indignation you call yourself a christian no doubt but are you do you truly think that when death shall come to you it is really not death but the simple transition into another and better life do you believe in the actual immortality of your soul and do you realize what it means you do you are quite sure then do you live as one convinced of it? Are you quite indifferent to the riches and purely material advantages of this world? Are you as happy in poverty as in wealth? And are you independent of social esteem? Are you bent on the very highest and most unselfish ideals of life and conduct? I do not say you are not. I merely ask if you are. If your answer is in the affirmative, do not give the lie to your creed by your daily habits, conversation, and manners. For this is what thousands of professing Christians do, and the clergy are by no means exempt. I know very well, of course, that I must not expect your appreciation, or even your attention, in matters purely spiritual. The world is too much with you, and you become obstinate of opinion and rooted in prejudice nevertheless as i said before this is not my concern your moods are not mine and with your prejudices i have nothing to do my creed is drawn from nature nature just invincible yet tender nature who shows us that life 
as we know it now, at this very time and in this very world, is a blessing so rich in its as yet unused powers and possibilities, that it may be truly said of the greater majority of human beings that scarce one of them has ever begun to learn how to live. Shakespeare, the greatest human exponent of human nature at its best and worst, the profound thinker and artist who dealt boldly with the facts of good and evil as they truly are, and did not hesitate to contrast them forcibly without any of the deceptive half-tones of vice and virtue, which are the chief stock in trade of such modern authors as we may call degenerates, makes his Hamlet exclaim, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty, in form and moving! How express and admirable! In action, how like an angel! In apprehension, how like a god! Let us consider two of these designations in particular. How infinite in faculty! and in apprehension how like a god the sentences are prophetic like so many of shakespeare's utterances they foretell the true condition of the soul of man when it shall have discovered its capabilities infinite in faculty that is to say able to do all it shall will to do there is no end to this power no hindrance in either earth or heaven to its resolute working no stint to the life supplies on which it may draw unceasingly and in apprehension how like a god here the word apprehension is used in the sense of attaining knowledge to learn or to apprehend wisdom it means of course that if the soul's capability of apprehending or learning the true meaning and use of every fact and circumstance which environs its existence were properly perceived and applied then the image of god in which the creator made humanity would become the veritable likeness of the divine but as this powerful and infinite faculty of apprehension is seldom if ever rightly understood and as man generally concentrates his whole effort upon ministering to his purely material needs utterly ignoring and wilfully refusing to realize those larger claims which are purely spiritual he presents the appearance of a maimed and imperfect object a creature who having strong limbs declines to use the same or who possessing incalculable wealth crazily considers himself a pauper jesus christ whom we may look upon as a human incarnation of divine thought an outcome and expression of the word or law of god came to teach us our true position in the scale of the great creative and progressive purpose. But in the days of his coming, men would not listen, nor will they listen even now. They say with their mouths, but they do not believe with their hearts, that he rose from the dead, and they cannot understand that, as a matter of fact, he never died, seeing that death for him, as for all who have mastered the inward constitution, and commingling of the elements was impossible his real life was not injured or affected by the agony on the cross or by his three days entombment the one was a torture to his physical frame which to the limited perception of those who watched him die as they thought appeared like a dissolution of the whole man the other was the mere rest and silence necessary 
for what is called the miracle of the resurrection but which was simply the natural rising of the same body the atoms of which were reinvested and made immortal by the imperishable spirit which owned and held them in being the whole life and so-called death of christ was and is a great symbolic lesson to mankind of the infinite power of that within us which we call soul but which we may perhaps in these scientific days term an eternal radioactivity capable of exhaustless energy and of readjustment to varying conditions life is all life there is no such thing as death in its composition and the intelligent comprehension of its endless ways and methods of change and expression is the secret of the universe it appears to be generally accepted that we are not to know this secret that it is too vast and deep for our limited capacities and that even if we did know it it would be of no use to us as we are bound hard and fast by certain natural and elemental laws over which we have no control old truisms are restated and violently asserted namely that our business is merely to be born to live breed and arrange things as well as we can for those who come after us and then to die and there an end a stupid round of existence not one whit higher than that of the silkworm is it for such a monotonous commonplace way of life and purpose as this that humanity has been endowed with infinite faculty is it for such poor aims and ends as these that we are told in the legended account of the beginning of things to replenish the earth and subdue it there is great meaning in that command subdue it the business of each one of us who has come into the knowledge and possession of his or her own soul is to subdue the earth that is to hold it and all it contains under subjection not to allow its forces whether interior or exterior to subdue the soul but it may perhaps be said we do not yet understand all the forces with which we have to contend and in this way they master us that may be so but if it is so with any of you it is quite your own fault your own fault i say for there is no power human or divine that compels you to remain in ignorance each one of you has a master talisman and key to all locked doors no state education can do for you what you might do for yourselves if you only had the will it is your own choice entirely if you elect to live in subjection to the earth instead of placing the earth under subjection to your dominance then again you have been told to replenish the earth as well as to subdue it in these latter days through a cupidity as amazing as criminal you are not replenishing so much as impoverishing the earth and think you that no interest will be exacted for your reckless plunder you mistake you complain of the high taxes imposed upon you by your merely material and ephemeral governments but you forget that the everlasting government of all worlds demands an even higher rate of compensation for such wrongs or injurious uses as you make of this world which was and is intended to serve as a place of training for the development and perfection of the whole human race but which 
owing to personal greed and selfishness, is too often turned into a mere grave for the interment of faulty civilizations. In studying the psychic side of life, it should be well and distinctly understood that there is an ever-living spirit within each one of us, a spirit for which there is no limited capacity and no unfavorable surroundings. Its capacity is infinite as God, and its surroundings are always made by itself. It is its own heaven, and once established within that everlasting center, it radiates from the inward to the outward, thus making its own environment, not only now, but forever. It is its own life, and in the active work of perpetually regenerating and recreating itself, knows nothing of death. I must now claim the indulgence of those among my readers who possess the rare gift of patience, for anything that may seem too personal in the following statement, which I feel it almost necessary to make on the subject of my own psychic creed. I am so often asked if I believe this or that, if I am orthodox, if I am a skeptic, materialist, or agnostic, that I should like, if possible, to make things clear between myself and these inquirers. Therefore, I may say at once that my belief in God and the immortality of the soul is absolute, but that I did not attain to the faith I hold without hard training and bitter suffering. This need not be dwelt upon, being past. I began to write when I was too young to know anything of the world's worldly ways, and when I was too enthusiastic and too much carried away by the splendor and beauty of the spiritual ideal to realize the inevitable derision and scorn which are bound to fall upon untried explorers into the mysteries of the unseen. Yet it was solely on account of a strange psychical experience which chanced to myself when I stood upon the threshold of what is called life that I found myself producing my first book, A Romance of Two Worlds. It was a rash experiment, but it was the direct result of an initiation into some few of the truths behind the veil of the seeming real. I did not know then why I was selected for such an initiation, and I do not know even now. It arose quite naturally out of a series of ordinary events which might happen to anyone. I was not compelled or persuaded into it. For being alone in the world and more or less friendless, I had no opportunity to seek advice or assistance from any person as to the course of life or learning I should pursue. And I learned what I did learn because of my own unwavering intention and will to be instructed. I should here perhaps explain the tenor of the instruction which was gradually imparted to me in just such measures of proportion as I was found to be receptive. The first thing I was taught was how to bring every feeling and sense into close union with the spirit of nature. Nature, I was told, is the reflection of the working mind of the Creator, and any opposition to that working mind on the part of any living organism it has created cannot but result in disaster. Pursuing this line of study, a wonderful vista of perpetual revealment was opened to me. I saw how humanity, moved by gross egoism, has in every age of the world 
ordained laws and morals for itself which are the very reverse of nature's teaching i saw how instead of helping the wheel of progress and wisdom onward man reverses it by his obstinacy and turns it backward even on the very point of great attainment and i was able to perceive how the sorrows and despairs of the world are caused by this one simple fact man working against nature while nature ever divine and invincible pursues her god-appointed course sweeping her puny opponents aside and inflexibly carrying out her will to the end and i learned how true it is that if man went with her instead of against her there would be no more misunderstanding of the laws of the universe and that where there is now nothing but discord all would be divinest harmony my first book a romance of two worlds was an eager though crude attempt to explain and express something of what i myself had studied on some of these subjects though as i have already said my mind was unformed and immature and therefore I was not permitted to disclose more than a glimmering of the light I was beginning to perceive. My own probation, destined to be a severe one, had only just been entered upon, and hard and fast limits were imposed on me for a certain time. I was forbidden, for example, to write of radium, that wonderful discovery of the immediate hour, though it was then, and had been for a long period, perfectly well known to my instructors, who possessed all the means of extracting it from substances as yet undreamed of by latter-day scientists. I was only permitted to hint at it under the guise of the word electricity, which, after all, was not so much of a misnomer, seeing that electric force displays itself in countless millions of forms. My electric theory of the universe, in the romance of two worlds, foreran the utterance of the scientist who in the hibbert journal for january nineteen o five wrote as follows the last years have seen the dawn of a revolution in science as great as that which in the sphere of religion overthrew the many gods and crowned the one matter as we have understood it there is none nor probably anywhere the individual atom the so-called atoms are systems of electronic corpuscles bound together by their mutual forces too firmly for any human contrivance completely to sunder them alike in their electric composition differing only in the rhythms of their motion electricity is all things and all things are electric this was precisely my teaching in the first book i ever wrote i was ridiculed for it of course and I was told that there was no spiritual force in electricity. I differ from this view, but radioactivity is perhaps the better, because the truer term to employ in seeking to describe the germ or embryo of the soul. For, as scientists have proved, radium is capable of absorbing from surrounding bodies some unknown form of energy, which it can render evident as heat and light. This is precisely what the radioactivity in each individual soul of each individual human being is ordained to do, to absorb an unknown form of energy which it can render evident as heat and light. 
heat and light are the composition of life and the life which this radioactivity of the soul generates in itself and of itself can never die or as i wrote in a romance of two worlds like all flames this electric or radiant spark can either be fanned into a fire or allowed to escape in air it can never be destroyed and again from the same book all the wonders of nature are the result of light and heat alone paracelsus as early as about fifteen twenty six made guarded mention of the same substance or quality describing it thus the more of the humour of life it has the more of the spirit of life abounds in that life though truly this vital radioactive force lacks all fitting name to the material science radium or radium chloride is a minute salt crystal so rare and costly to obtain that it may be counted as about three thousand times the price of gold in the market but of the action of pure radium the knowledge of ordinary scientific students is nil they know that an infinitely small spark of radium salt will emit heat and light continuously without any combustion or change in its own structure and i would here quote a passage from a lecture delivered by one of our prominent scientists in nineteen o four details concerning the behavior of several radioactive bodies were detected as for example their activity was not constant it gradually grew in strength but the grown portion of the activity could be blown away and the blown away part retained its activity only for a time it decayed in a few days or weeks whereas the radium rose in strength again at the same rate that the other decayed and so on constantly it was as if a new form of matter was constantly being produced and as if the radioactivity was a concomitant of the change of form it was also found that radium kept on producing heat de novo so as to keep itself always a fraction of a degree above the surrounding temperature also that it spontaneously produced electricity does this teach no lesson on the resurrection of the dead of the blown away part which decays in a few days or weeks of the radia or radiance of the soul rising in strength again at the same rate that the other the body or grown portion of the activity decays of the new form of matter and the radioactivity as a concomitant of the change of form does not science here almost unwittingly verify the words of st paul it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body there is nothing impossible or miraculous in such a consummation even according to modern material science it is merely the natural action of pure radioactivity or that etherical composition for which we have no name but which we have vaguely called the soul for countless ages to multitudes of people this expression the soul has become over familiar by constant repetition and conveys little more than the suggestion of a myth or the hint of an imaginary existence now there is nothing in the whole universe so real as the vital germ of the actual form and being of the living radiant active creature within each one of us 
the creature who impressed and guided by our free will works out its own delight or doom the will of each man or woman is like the compass of a ship where it points the ship goes if the needle directs it to the rocks there is wreck and disaster if to the open sea there is clear sailing god leaves the will of man at perfect liberty his divine love neither constrains nor compels we must ourselves learn the ways of right and wrong and having learned we must choose we must injure ourselves god will not injure us we invite our own miseries god does not send them the evils and sorrows that afflict mankind are of mankind's own making even in natural catastrophes which ruin cities and devastate countries it is well to remember that nature which is the material expression of the mind of god will not tolerate too long a burden of human iniquity nature destroys what is putrescent she covers it up with fresh earth on which healthier things may find place to grow i tried to convey some hint of these truths in my romance of two worlds some few gave heed others wrote to me from all parts of the world concerning what they called my views on the subjects treated of some asked to be initiated into my experience of the unseen but many of my correspondents i say it with regret were moved by purely selfish considerations for their own private and particular advancement and showed by the very tone of their letters not only an astounding hypocrisy but also the good opinion they entertained of their own worthiness their own capabilities and their own great intellectuality forgetful of the words except ye become as little children ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven now the spirit of a little child is receptive and trustful it has no desire for argument and it is instinctively confident that it will not be led into unnecessary difficulty or danger by its responsible guardians this is the spirit in which if we are sincere in our seeking for knowledge we should and must approach the deeper psychological mysteries of nature but as long as we interpose the darkness of personal doubt and prejudice between ourselves and the light eternal no progress can be made and every attempt to penetrate into the holy of holies will be met and thrust back by that flaming sword which from the beginning as now turns every way to guard the tree of life knowing this and seeing that self was the stumbling block with most of my correspondence i was anxious to write another book at once also in the guise of a romance to serve as a little lamp of love whereby my readers might haply discover the real character of the obstacle which blocked their way to an intelligent soul advancement but the publisher i had at the time the late mr george bentley assured me that if i wrote another spiritualistic book i should lose the public hearing i had just gained i do not know why he had formed this opinion but as he was a kindly personal friend and took a keen interest in my career never handing any manuscript of mine over to his reader but always reading it himself i felt it incumbent upon me as a young beginner 
to accept the advice which I knew could only be given with the very best intentions towards me. To please him, therefore, and to please the particular public to which he had introduced me, I wrote something entirely different, a melodramatic tale entitled Vendetta, the Story of One Forgotten. The book made a certain stir, and Mr. Bentley next begged me to try a love story, pure et simple. I quote from his own letter. The result was my novel of Thelma, which achieved a great popular success and still remains a favorite work with a large majority of readers. I then considered myself free to move once more upon the lines which my study of psychic forces had convinced me were of preeminent importance, and moved by a strong conviction that men and women are hindered from attaining their full heritage of life by the obstinate interposition of their merely material selves, I wrote Ardath, the story of a dead self. The plan of this book was partially suggested by the following passages from the second apocryphal book of Esdras. Go into a field of flowers where no house is builded, and pray unto the highest continually. Then will I come and talk with thee. So I went my way into the field which is called Ardath, like as he commanded me, and there I sat among the flowers. In this field the prophet sees the vision of a woman. And it came to pass, while I was talking with her, behold her face upon a sudden shined exceedingly, and her countenance glistened, so that I was afraid of her and mused what it might be. And I looked and behold the woman appeared unto me no more but there was a city builded and a large place showed itself from the foundations on this i raised the fabric of my own dream city and sought to elucidate some of the meaning of that great text in ecclesiastes which contains in itself all the philosophy of the ages that which hath been is now and that which is to be hath already been and God requireth that which is past. The book, however, so my publisher, Mr. Bentley, told me, in a series of letters which I still possess, and which show how keen was his own interest in my work, was entirely over the heads of the general public. His opinion was, no doubt, correct, as Ardath still remains the least popular of any book I have ever written. Nevertheless, it brought me the unsought and very generous praise of the late poet laureate, Alfred Lord Tennyson, as well as the equally unsought good opinion and personal friendship of the famous statesman, William Ewart Gladstone. While many of the better-class literary journals vied with one another in according me an almost enthusiastic eulogy, such authorities as the Athenium and Spectator praised the whole conception and style of the work, the latter journal going as far as to say I had beaten Beckford's famous Vathek on its own ground. Whatever may now be the consensus of opinion on its merits or demerits, I know and feel it to be one of my most worthy attempts, even though it is not favored by the million. It does not appeal to anything of the moment merely because there are very few people who can or will understand that if the soul or radia of a human being is so forgetful of its highest origins as to cling to its human self only, 
events the hero of ardath clung to the shadow of his former self and to the illusory pictures of that former self's pleasure and vices and vanities then the way to the eternal happier progress is barred there is yet another intention in this book which seems to be missed by the casual reader namely that each human soul is a germ of separate and individual spiritual existence even as no two leaves are exactly alike on any tree and no two blades of grass are precisely similar so no two souls resemble each other but are wholly different endowed with different gifts and different capacities individuality is strongly insisted upon in material nature and why because material nature is merely the reflex or mirror of the more strongly insistent individuality of psychic form again psychic form is generated from a divinely eternal psychic substance a radia or emanation of god's own being which as it progresses onward through endless eons of constantly renewed vitality grows more and more powerful changing its shape often but never its everlasting composition and quality therefore all the experiences of the soul or psychic form from its first entrance into active consciousness whether in this world or in other worlds are attracted to itself by its own inherent volition and work together to make it what it is now and what it will be hereafter that is what ardath the story of a dead self seeks to explain and i have nothing to take back from what i have written in its pages in its experimental teaching it is the natural and intended sequence of a romance of two worlds and was meant to assist the studies of the many who had written to me asking for help and despite the fact that some of these persons owing to an inherent incapacity for concentrated thought upon any subject found it too difficult as they said for casual reading its reception was sufficiently encouraging to decide me on continuing to press upon public attention the theories therein set forth the soul of lilith was therefore my next venture a third link in the chain i sought to weave between the perishable materialism of our ordinary conceptions of life and the undying spiritual quality of life as it truly is in this i portrayed the complete failure that must inevitably result from man's prejudice and intellectual pride when studying the marvelous mysteries of what i would call the further world that is to say the soul of the world which is hidden deeply behind its external appearance and how impossible it is and ever must be that any soul should visibly manifest itself where there is undue attachment to the body the publication of the book was a very interesting experience it was and is still less popular than ardath but it has been gladly welcomed by a distinctly cultured minority of persons famous in art science and literature whose good opinion is well worth having with this reward i was perfectly content but my publisher was not so easily pleased he wanted something that would sell better to relieve his impatience therefore i wrote a more or less sensational novel dealing with the absinthe drinkers of paris entitled wormwood which did a certain amount of good in its way 
by helping to call public attention to the devastation wrought by the use of the pernicious drug among the french and other continental peoples and after this receiving a strong and almost imperative impetus towards that particular goal whither my mind was set i went to work again with renewed vigour on my own favourite and long-studied line of argument indifferent alike to publisher or public filled with the fervour of a passionate and proved faith i wrote barabbas a dream of the world's tragedy and this was the signal of separation from my excellent old friend george bentley who had not the courage to publish a poetic romance which introduced albeit with a tenderness and reverence unspeakable so far as my own intention was concerned the crucifixion and resurrection of christ he wrote to me expressing his opinion in these terms i can conscientiously praise the power and feeling you exhibit for your vast subject and the rush and beauty of the language and above all i feel that the book is the genuine outcome of a fervent faith all too rare in these days but i fear its effect on the public mind yet when urged to a given point in the discussion he could not deny that the effect on the public mind of the passion play at ober ammergau is generally impressive and helpful while he was bound to admit that there was something to be said for the introduction of divine personages in the epic romances of milton and dante what could be written in poetic verse did not however seemed to him suitable for poetic prose and i did not waste words in argument as i knew the time had come for the parting of the ways i sought my present publisher mr methuen who being aware from a business point of view that i had now won a certain reputation took barabbas without parley it met with an almost unprecedented success not only in this country but all over the world Within a few months it was translated into every known European language, inclusive even of modern Greek, and nowhere perhaps has it awakened a wider interest than in India, where it is published in Hindustani, Gujarati, and various other Eastern dialects. Its notable triumph was achieved despite a hailstorm of abuse rattled down upon me by the press, a hailstorm which I, personally, found welcome and refreshing inasmuch as it cleared the air and cleaned the road for my better wayfaring it released me once and for all from the trammels of such obligation as is incurred by praise and set me firmly on my feet in that complete independence which to me and to all who seek what i have found is a paramount necessity for as thomas a kempis writes whosoever neither desires to please men nor fears to displease them shall enjoy much peace i took my freedom gratefully and ever since that time of unjust and ill-considered attack from persons who were too malignantly minded to even read the work they vainly endeavoured to destroy have been happily indifferent to all so-called criticism and immune from all attempts to interrupt my progress or turn me back upon my chosen way from henceforth I recognized that no one could hinder or oppose me but myself, and that I had the making, tinder God, of my own destiny. I followed up Barabbas as quickly as possible by The Sorrows of Satan, 
thus carrying out the preconceived intention I had always had of depicting, first, the martyrdom which is always the world's guerdon to absolute good, and secondly, the awful, unimaginable torture which must, by divine law, forever be the lot of absolute evil. The two books carried their message far and wide, with astonishing success and swiftness, and I then drew some of my threads of former argument together in the Master Christian, wherein I depicted Christ as a child, visiting our world again as it is today, and sorrowfully observing the wickedness which men practice in his name. This book was seized upon by thousands of readers in all countries of the world, with an amazing avidity which proved how deep was the longing for some clear exposition of faith that might console as well as command. And after its publication, I decided to let it take its own uninterrupted course for a time, and to change my own line of work to lighter themes, lest I should be set down as spiritualist or theosophist, both of which terms have been brought into contempt by tricksters. So I played with my pen, and did my best to entertain the public with stories of everyday life and love, such as the least instructed could understand, and that I now allude to the psychological side of my work is merely to explain that these six books, namely, A Romance of Two Worlds, Ardath, The Story of a Dead Self, the Soul of Lilith, Barabbas, The Sorrows of Satan, and The Master Christian, are the result of a deliberately conceived plan and intention, and are all linked together by the one theory. They have not been written solely as pieces of fiction for which I, the author, am paid by the publisher, or you, the reader, are content to be temporarily entertained. They are the outcome of what I myself have learned, practiced, and proved in the daily experiences, both small and great, of daily life. You may probably say, and you probably will say, what does that matter to us? We do not care a jot for your experiences. They are transcendental and absurd. They bore us to extinction. Nevertheless, quite callous as you are or may be, there must come a time when pain and sorrow have you in their grip, when what you call death stands face to face with you, and when you will find that all you have thought, desired, or planned for your own pleasure, and all that you possess of material good or advantage, vanishes like smoke, leaving nothing behind, when the world will seem no more than a small receding point from which you must fall into the unknown, and when that dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will. You have at present living among you a great professing scientist, Dr. Oliver Lodge, who, wandering among mazy infinities, conceives it even possible to communicate with departed spirits, while I, who have no such weight of worldly authority and learning behind me, tell you that such a thing is out of all natural law, and therefore can never be. Nature can and will unveil to us many mysteries that seem supernatural, when they are only manifestations of the deepest center of the purest natural. But nothing can alter divine law, or change the system which has governed the universe from the beginning. 
and by this divine law and system we have to learn that the so-called dead are not dead they have merely been removed to fresh life and new spheres of action under which circumstances they cannot possibly hold communication with us in any way unless they again assume the human form and human existence in this case which very frequently happens it takes not only time for us to know them but it also demands a certain instinctive receptiveness on our parts or willingness to recognize them even the risen saviour was not at first recognized by his own disciples it is because i have been practically convinced of this truth and because i have learned that life is not and never can be death but only constant change and reinvestment of spirit into form that i have presumed so far as to allude to my own faith and experience a personal touch for which i readily apologize knowing that it cannot be interesting to the majority who would never take the trouble to shape their lives as i seek to shape mine still if there are one or two out of a million who feel as i do that life and love are of little worth if they must end in dark nothingness these may perhaps have the patience to come with me through the pages of a narrative which is neither incidental nor sensational nor anything which should pertain to the modern romance or novel and which has been written because the writing of it enforced itself upon me with an insistence that would take no denial perhaps there will be at least one among those who turn over this book who will be sufficiently interested in the psychic that is to say the immortal and therefore the only real side of life to give a little undivided attention to the subject to that one i address myself and say will you to begin with drop your burden of preconceived opinions and prejudices whatever they are will you set aside the small cares and trifles that affect your own material personality will you detach yourself from your own private and particular surroundings for a space and agree to think with me thinking is i know the hardest of all hard tasks to the modern mind but if you would learn you must undertake this trouble if you would find the path which is made fair and brilliant by the radiance of the soul's imperishable summer you must not grudge time if i try no matter how inadequately to show you something of the mystic power that makes for happiness do not shut your eyes in scorn or languor to the smallest flash of light through your darkness which may help you to a mastery of the secret i say again will you think with me will you for instance think of life what it is of death what it is what is the primary object of living what is the problem solved by dying all these questions should have answer for nothing is without a meaning and nothing ever has been or ever will be without a purpose in this world apparently and according to our surface knowledge of all physical and mental phenomena it would seem that the chief business of humanity is to continually recreate itself man exists in his own opinion merely to perpetuate man all the wonders of the earth air fire and water all the sustenance drawn from the teeming bosom of nature all the progress of countless civilizations 
in ever-recurring and repeated processional order, all the sciences old and new, are solely to nourish, support, instruct, entertain, and furnish food and employment for the tiny two-legged imp of chance, spawned, as he himself asserts, out of gas and atoms. Yet, as he personally declares through the mouth of his modern science, he is not of real importance withal. The little planet on which he dwells would, to all seeming, move on in its orbit in the same way as it does now, without him. In itself, it is a pygmy world compared with the rest of the solar system of which it is a part. Nevertheless, the fact cannot be denied that his material surroundings are of a quality tending to either impress or to deceive man with a sense of his own value. The world is his oyster which he, with the sword of enterprise, will open, and all his natural instincts urge him to perpetuate himself in some form or other incessantly and without stint. Why? Why is his existence judged to be necessary? Why should he not cease to be? Trees would grow, flowers would bloom, birds would sing, fish would glide through the rivers and the seas, the insect and animal tribes of field and forest would enjoy their existence unmolested, and the great sun would shine on ever the same, rising at dawn, sinking at even, with unbroken exactitude and regularity, if man no longer lived. Why have the monstrous forces of evolution thundered their way through cycles of creation to produce so infinitesimal a prodigy? Till this question is answered, so long must life seem at its best but vague and unsatisfactory. So long over all things must brood the shadow of death made more gloomy by hopeless contemplation. So long must creation appear something of a cruel farce for which peoples and civilizations come into being merely to be destroyed and leave no trace. All the work futile, all the education useless, all the hope vain. Only when men and women learn that their lives are not infinitesimal, but infinite, that each of them possesses within himself or herself an eternal, active, conscious, individual force, a being, a form, which in its radioactive energy draws to itself and accommodates to its use everything that is necessary for the accomplishment of its endeavors, whether such endeavors be to continue its life on this planet or to remove to other spheres. Only then will it be clearly understood that all nature is the subject and servant of this radiant energy, that itself is the godlike image or emanation of God, and that as such it has its eternal part to perform in the eternal movement towards the eternal highest. I now leave the following pages to the reader's attentive or indifferent consideration. To me, as I have already stated, outside opinion is of no moment. Personally speaking, I should perhaps have preferred, had it been possible, to set forth the incidents narrated in the ensuing romance in the form of separate essays on the nature of the mystic tuition and experience through which some of us in this workaday world have the courage to pass successfully. But I know that the masses of the people who drift restlessly to and fro upon the surface of this planet, 
ever seeking for comfort in various forms of religion, and too often finding none, will not listen to any spiritual truth, unless it is conveyed to them as though they were children, in the form of a story. I am not the heroine of the tale, though I have narrated it, more or less as told to me, in the first person singular, because it seemed to me simpler and more direct. She to whom the perfect comprehension of happiness has come with an equally perfect possession of love, is one out of a few who are seeking what she has found. Many among the world's greatest mystics and philosophers have tried for the prizes she has won. For the world possesses Plato, the Bible, and Christ, but in its apparent present ways of living has learned little or nothing from the three, so that other would-be teachers may well despair of carrying persuasion where such mighty predecessors have seemingly failed. The serious and real things of life are nowadays made subjects for derision rather than reverence. Then again, there is unhappily an alarmingly increasing majority of weak-minded and degenerate persons, born of drunken, diseased, or vicious parents, who are mentally unfit for the loftier forms of study, and in whom the mere act of thought concentration would be dangerous and likely to upset their mental balance altogether while by far the larger half of the social community seek to avoid the consideration of anything that is not exactly suited to their tastes. Some of our most respected social institutions are nothing but so many self-opinionated and unconscious oppositions to the law of nature, which is the law of God, and thus it often happens that when obstinate humanity persists in considering its own ideas of right and wrong, superior to the eternal decrees which have been visibly presented through nature since the earliest dawn of creation. A faulty civilization sets in, and is presently swept back upon its advancing wheels, and forced to begin again with primal letters of learning. In the same way, a faulty soul, an imperfect individual spirit, is likewise compelled to return to school and resume the study of the lessons it has failed to put into practice. Nevertheless, people cannot bear to have it plainly said or written down, as it has been said and written down over and over again any time since the world began, that all the corrupt government, wars, slaveries, plagues, diseases, and despairs that afflict humanity are humanity's own sins taking vengeance upon the sinners even unto the third and fourth generation. And this not out of divine cruelty, but because of divine law, which from the first ordained that evil shall slay itself, leaving room only for good. Men and women alike will scarce endure to read any book which urges this unalterable fact upon their attention. They pronounce the author arrogant or presuming to lay down the law, and they profess to be scandalized by an encounter with honesty. Nevertheless, the faithful writer of things as they are will not be disturbed by the aspect of things as they seem. Spirit, the creative essence of all that is, works in various forms, but always on an ascending plane, and it invariably rejects and destroys whatever interrupts that onward and upward progress. Being in itself 
the radiant outflow of the mind of god it is the life of the universe and it is very needful to understand and to remember that there is nothing which can properly be called supernatural or above nature inasmuch as this eternal spirit of energy is in and throughout all nature therefore what to the common mind appears miraculous or impossible is nevertheless actually ordinary and only seems extraordinary to the common mind's lack of knowledge and experience the fountain of youth and the elixir of life were dreams of the ancient mystics and scientists but they are not dreams today. to the soul that has found them they are divine realities marie corelli end of author's prologue